Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. a walk, an excursion to converse, connect, and catch up at a cool location with some of the most interesting people you can find. Hey, this is Steve Sweeney. I am taking a walk with my old boss and friend Buzz Knight. And this podcast, you can get it on Spotify and Apple and I don't know where you can get it, but he'll tell you. Well, Steve Sweeney, it is so good to be here taking a walk with you and so great to see you. Yeah, we're taking a walk at Fresh Pond in Cambridge. Now, the reason I picked this, we could have walked in Charlestown, but, you know, we'd have to duck the gunfire and so forth. No, I'm kidding. Um, So Charlestown is where I actually grew up, which I love. But I also, uh, my imagination, where we are in Fresh Pond, Cambridge, was actually the country to me. And I used to come over here the young guy, maybe 16, 17, 18, and it was the hippie era, and my life was full of dreams, and I've always had a great connection to this fresh pond. So that's why we're here, and sometimes I still come over and run, but as I get older, the, the track here looks longer and longer, but as you can see, it's very beautiful and quiet and peaceful, and I love it. It is, it's a great spot. Uh, I have driven by this area, you know, many times before commuting, that uh, dreadful word commuting, um, which I don't miss, which we can talk about, uh, but uh, I've never walked here. So I'm really uh, appreciative uh, to be taking a walk with you here. And well, I want to go back with you. I remember when I got the call, I was doing stand-up comedy and acting, which is how I began anyway. But I had done a lot of guest shots on Jerry Williams and so on. And I got the call from you. And Charles Laquadera, who was a, a radio legend, and you called me to do a show with Ty. I'll never forget it. It was so exciting. And then um, 
we practiced the show, and then about a month before we were going to do it, you said, by the way, is it going to be a problem getting up at quarter to four? <laughs> and of course, of course, you know, you want the job, and it's exciting to do radio, and of course you say no, but in my mind I'm saying, holy shit, he's, <laughs> he's got to be kidding. And... Uh, you know, I, I managed to, like, do it. I, I have to say, I never got actually used to it. And then I asked Lauren and Wally over at your other station, ROR. Yeah. And I was on the air maybe four years doing morning radio, and I said to them, and they were, at the time they were doing it 20 years, and I said, uh, when do you get used to this? And do you know they both said they never got used to it? <laughs> yes. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah. And I took a walk with Wally at Walden Pond, and he still gets up early in the morning. He doesn't get up at 4 in the morning, but he gets up at 6 in the morning. His body clock yeah. doesn't allow him to sleep. You know, I got to tell you, because I have so many great memories of that show, but I, I remember, like, the highlight of my week, even though I love doing the show, was Saturday because I'd look at the clock and it was like four, you know, and I'd say, oh, I don't have to get up. And it was like ecstasy. It really was. Yeah. It was like the greatest thing. It's just like, you know, you, do you play golf? I've never played golf in my life, believe well, it or not. It's, it's like you enjoy golf more when you have a job and, you know, or whatever your leisure activity is. Yeah. But uh, sleep... It was a real issue, but for me, being a recovering person, it was a real triumph for me because I'm coming up on like 30 years of being clean and sober. And Congrats. What man. I used to say is, like in my cocaine years, I say, quarter four, I would be up, but I hadn't, I'm not getting up. I would be up, but I can't imagine like going in there and then you know you don't you can't speak then you can speak and your jaws all over the place and so it was like a real uh that was the biggest challenge getting up but i have so many great memories of doing morning radio one of the great interviews was uh i got to interview carlos santana and at the end he's supposed to say you're listening to sweeney's neighborhood and uh it was so funny buzz i said okay you have to say this is Sweeney's neighborhood. He said, okay, Dweeney neighborhood. No, I said Sweeney. Okay, Dweeney neighborhood. I said, no, Sweeney. Yeah, Dweeney. And then another interview I remember that, you know, I was interviewing kind of my heroes. Mm -hmm. So I interviewed Mark Knopfler, and I said, listen to this lyric. This is great, whatever. And he says, yeah, that's not bad. I said, Mark, you wrote it. But, you know, I guess that's what happens with these guys. You know, they write so much great music and sometimes they forget like I have people tell me about lines that I wrote I say wow that's a good line I say well that's you you wrote it it was 20 <laughs> years ago but I come over here and um, I've been able Buzz to for 40 years work like in creative work you know, like acting or writing or stand-up or radio, whatever. 
I mean, it's it's been an amazing thing. I got addicted to being creative and um, to be able to have made a living doing it, it's just remarkable. So when did you first really discover that that's where your heart was, you know, the creative path? What was the light that went on that signified that you knew, you know, you were headed that way? When I was 19, my brother called me. I'd never acted before. And my brother was an actor up at Smith College. And I went up and I got on stage and I started emoting. Now, young actors think they're acting when they're emoting, but there's no craft involved. So it's like you're doing Macbeth and I got that horrible Boston accent, you know. Is that a dagger that I see before me? You know, it's like, you got kids. Have you ever had to go to a school play? Sure. It's just awful. You, you, usually. <laughs> yeah, right? usually. You yeah. agree? Yeah, I do. But I, I, I love the whole part, the whole thing of theater, being a part of it. And then I became a doorman at the Schubert and the Colonial, and I got to see these great artists. And I think the greatest moments for me, I think that's my real love, is theater. I love it all, but theater the most. I was able to see people on stage that were just... I saw Richard Burton do Equus, Christopher Plummer do um, one-man show of John Barrymore. And the thing that uh, inspired me to do one-person shows was Lily Tomlin's one-woman show, Gilda Radner, uh, Jack Lemon. I was the doorman for Jack Lemon, And he would come up after... Every, he did a play uh, something my father's, whatever it was, and he was remarkable. You know, you never really see an actor till you see them on stage. Just like a, a comedian, you, you see him on TV, that's not it. But after the play, he would come up and play the piano, and just all these crazy, beautiful people. There was a play called The King and I, and Yul Brenner. He was like a complete prick, you know. He's <laughs> he was, a, really? Yeah, oh, yeah, he had a big voice. and <laughs> he, was, he originally started in the circus, and he had all these superstitions. So the whole theater had to be painted brown, and he'd never whistle in the theater, and he's breaking everybody's balls. So the stagehands would go by his dressing room and whistle. Oh, who is whistling? You know, and all this shit. But <laughs> it was such a wonderful world. You know, I loved being from Charlestown, but... Theater really opened up this whole world for me. So I think that's where I got the bug. Do you remember the first time somebody told you a story? Because you're such an amazing storyteller oh, and wow. that you must have been influenced by someone in that yeah, regard. Yeah, you know what? I'll never forget this, this guy from Charlestown. This is the hippie era. He was traveling all over the world and he was in Afghanistan before there was all these wars and everything. And he got a carpet, and he kind of like smuggled it into Europe. And they said, this thing is priceless. And I mean, stories, oh my God. I, I remember stories of, I've always had a fascination with crime, you know? And like, how did they pull this off? How did they pull that off? And, I hear stories of bank robberies in Charleston. I was kind of fascinated with that. And just all kinds of funny stories. And 
When we were in, when I grew up in Charlestown, those guys like Shorty Sullivan and Nippy Nolan and Q.E. O'Donnell, they would play softball and dive into home plate and everything. And you'd hear the story of the game. And it was, as a kid, that was as big as Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, whatever. Um, sports stories, crime stories, traveling stories, you know. Uh, Ray McLaughlin, who was the stage manager of the Boston Symphony, I worked as a stagehand for a while. This is many years ago. They went to China and he would just stand on a corner. He's a white Irish guy and he said a thousand people would form around him. They had never seen a white guy, you know. How about you? You're interested in stories. Yeah, I feel like stories start really, uh, you know, with parents telling stories. Ah, you know, there yeah. and many times these are things that are passed through, you know, generations before them, and they're always stories that. Um, certainly there's poetic license put in to make them a bit more yeah. crazy or yeah. funny yeah. but um, I think storytelling now where did you grow up I grew up in Stanford Connecticut okay what, what were the stories your parents told you well they would usually be stories about uh, you know like uh, for example um, my uncle right uh, oh, my family my stories family, family. stories That's great. Yeah. yeah and uh, Uncle Fred Actually, he would tell a story about this uh, co-worker uh, of his named Big Red Wilson, okay. right? Yeah. And he said he would always talk about Big Red, but the story was always how Big Red could fall asleep anywhere. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. And Big Red, he said, he actually, I swear to God, he would fall asleep standing up. <laughs> and you know that's not true, but oh, it just paints know. a picture that you never forget. So I think uh, at the heart of stories come, you know, where parents sort of pass them down, I guess, you know, you know. But um, now, were your parents funny? Um, yeah, no, I don't know. They were, sometimes my mother was funny and she didn't know she was funny. Uh, she would talk about us while we were sitting there, you know, say, I'm not gonna clean, let them clean. <laughs> Jesus, let them cook, I'm not cooking. Let them eat the potato salad and we're sitting there, you know. You're, you're right there. You're talking about us. Yeah. But uh, one of the stories that really got me about my mother, my mother, like your mother, lived to 102. Yeah. And she said her mother and, and other people in Ireland she kind, of, she kind of like didn't know how to tell a story, but she would give me the facts. She said they wouldn't even let us learn English and all this stuff about growing up in Ireland, you know. But the county she came from was Cork, which produced by percentage the most guys in the Irish Revolution, Rebellion. So, you know, there was a lot of hidden stuff. But boy, when I went to Ireland, did I learn about storytelling. Jesus, every frickin' rock has a story behind it. You know what was great when I was over there? Probably changed, but maybe not. When I was over there, which I've been four times, there was no television in the bread and breakfast, and there was no television in the pub. And I'd walk in, and I didn't realize how addicted I was to it. 
I, I didn't realize how addicted I was to it. And uh, you'd walk in the room and say, like, automatically, where's the television, you know? Um, so... But let's talk about this for a second. That's a topic. Yeah, so okay. you, you, um, you triggered something here, and I heard a report just as I was driving in about the terrible addiction that is going on with the, certainly not just the youth, but the youth of today with device addiction, uh, screen addiction. Um, what's your take on devices? Have they, have they helped or have they hurt, I guess? Walk all the way around that thing, is that yep. okay? Yep. Because um, I think it's a terrible problem. I have a wonderful nephew um, who I'm very proud of. As a matter of fact, he just got nominated for a Grammy. He's a musician. His name is Tim Lefebvre. And um, I hadn't seen him in two years. We went for lunch. He brought his phone. We started talking. He looked down at it. I said, what's that? He said, oh, it's just something on Instagram. I said, put it away. He said, what? I said, put the phone away. I'm your uncle. You haven't seen me in two years. And he said, you know, it wasn't some heavy argument or whatever. He said, well, you do it. I said, no, I don't. If you notice, I never take the phone to dinner or the golf course or like even right now, you said you'd be in front of the building. That's it. You know what I mean? Yep. So, yes, I do think it's an addiction as a woman walks by us looking at her phone. Yep. Um, Which, by the way, I'm sorry to interrupt. I think when you take a walk, you know, and you're enjoying either the company of somebody or you're enjoying the place uh, that you're at, um, I think it's a terrible thing when I see people's heads down not enjoying the day yeah, it, or enjoying the person. It's, you know, you know it frustrates what I, you me. You know what I find really annoying is... Like, I'll be in a bank, which is an enclosed space, and the guy will be on the phone, hey, you offered him 5,000, you know, it's like, I don't want to be invited into this conversation. You know, look at this puppy, oh my God. Oh, I know. Um, hi. Hi. Oh my God, six weeks? She's actually about I, I four mean, months. Four, I was gonna say that. Four months, yeah. Oh, oh my God. Um, yeah, I find it, you know, some families are more addicted than others, you know, but I did a gig, I did Joe Rogan's, um, let's sit on the bench here. Yep. I did Joe Rogan's podcast, and uh, he said, why don't you do a gig with me at the Improv? So, as a side point, the, it was easy doing the radio. Now I have to work at the improv. Now I'm getting, now I'm working. Now I have to get tensed up and everything. Yeah. But I go to the improv. You can stand if you want. I don't mind sitting in the wet. But um, the improv takes people's phones. Oh. And uh, it gives them back to them at the end. Now what I have to deal with, Every freaking performance now is people on their phones. It's so fucking rude, you know, and, um, you know, they are addicted, you know, and it's like, oh, I'm calling the babysitter or whatever. I try to be nice about it, and I say to the MC, you know, 
tell them to get off their phone, get off their phone. But it is, uh, it is not just the kids. See, they don't get it. I've been doing this 40 years. I present a product that I'm really proud of. I built the brand. I'm a performer. And I give the audience the respect of giving them something that's polished and finished, and even though I improvise, something that they would really get into. When I'm looking out and their heads are down, you know, one of the, one of the things that's really hard about stand-up is when you're angry, you can be angry, but then it's got to be funny. But sometimes I'm just fucking angry, you know? And I'm at a point now where that's what they see. But my, I like to be in a really good mood when I perform, and I don't want to be the bad guy. And I don't want to have to explain, you're being disrespectful to me, not just to me, the other performers. But you know, then the other side of me, when I'm in my normal life, I can really see it. I see it at AA meetings. Like, one of the, one of the points in AA is we say, learn to listen and listen to learn. And when people are on their phones, their focus is split. But they're also not supporting the person who's sharing. Because 60% of communication is nonverbal. So when you see somebody looking at you and listening to you, it gives you this certain energy. It's called emotional support. But when, when you uh, see somebody, they're paying half attention to you and you're pouring your heart out, on a deep level, you're going back to the bar room and you're not being heard and you're not listening. You know, the talking over each other or not. Like, this kid's on his phone. You know, I, it's not that I'm immune from this shit. I mean, I can remember getting up in the middle of the night like somebody would get a cigarette and I'm looking at my phone, you know. So, long answer to a short question. I, I see it all bad. I see it as really bad, except for YouTube, which I like because I can go back and I can see shows that I grew up with and all that, but ultimately when you step away from it, you're still looking at a screen. You're not looking at the trees, you know, the water, the stillness. Yeah, and I think of walking and why walking I think is important because it's about um, a mindfulness uh, in a moment in time. It's, it's, uh, it's the steps and the, the cadence of it and um, I know I noticed how you you know on the Joe Rogan podcast you talk about uh, breathing and you know sort of you know the importance of it well I mean I think when you take a walk um, oh my god it's, it's it, wonderful it's an amazing therapeutic uh, change of pace maybe if you're stuck creatively or if you're angry about something. Now, I'll tell do you, you practice mindfulness? I, I do, but I also need to be better at it. You know, I feel like one of the things that... So what that, happened to you in Sedona? So when I went out to Sedona... <clears throat> and you were a general manager of a radio I, station? I was a, uh, a corporate programmer for the whole company. And how many stations was that? 64 stations uh, across 15 markets. Um, okay, 64 stations in how many cities? Of, of 15, 15 cities. Okay, so when you were off the job, were you able to leave the job off your mind? Or did it like stay with you? Like I work in jails now, I'm able to walk out, but when I was teaching, it stayed with me. 
So you're out in Sedona. You got 64 stations. Yeah, and I had gone through a number of things. My mom passed away. Okay. Uh, so obviously, 102 led a great life, but you know, tremendously. It's a loss is a loss. A loss, yeah. man. And uh, additionally, uh, you know, this other family turmoil, let's just call it, was going on uh, in my life, mm -hmm. and. Um, I stopped while I was out there at one of those, you've been out there, right? Yeah, several times. One of those places where it's got one of those amazing rock formations that have the energy, yeah. you know, that's... Vortex, that's, they yeah. call it, yeah. And, and, I, and I went out on the trip kind of uncertain what I wanted to do. And I knew I wasn't necessarily happy what I was doing. Um, something felt wrong. And mm. I remember it so vividly on one of those vortex moments and I just came to the conclusion that um, I wanted to move into another chapter once my contract uh, was was over. Um, I, I, I greatly uh, loved the work and I loved the people and I loved the collaboration and the wins but um, I was also living on planes all the time or oh, really? you know commutes were I would literally many times Steve I would commute to the airport here and, right. and, and there would be two hours of commute to the airport I would land in Philadelphia and then I'd be stuck in another 90 minutes of traffic on the uh, you know airport you know on my way to the station I was just burnt from all of that you were burnt out you know and I didn't really want to um, sacrifice the things you know that were important uh, to, to try to enjoy, you know, I, 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 I felt like I was, uh, I never wanted to be that person that was just accepting a paycheck, you know, that, 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 that's not now, me. Now, how long ago was that? That was um, three years ago. You know, I had this program where I was uh, teaching kids, talking to kids about drugs and alcohol, long story. So I went to Dorchester High School, and one guy, I was just... Um, I was kind of stunned by his openness. He said, I'm burnt out. I'm a burnout. And my brother, who just retired from the Justice Department, he was a federal prosecutor, he says, oh yeah, he had lunch with somebody the other day, and they just said they, they were burnt. They burnt out. I remember that feeling when I was teaching. I was teaching at UMass, I think, or Suffolk, and I was teaching like four classes a day. By the end of the day, by the end of the day, in my mind, I'd be speaking, and then in the back of my mind, I'd be saying, will you shut the fuck up? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You've had it. Yeah, the voice in your head. Yeah, it's, it's not a good feeling being burnt out. But I, I, I never have looked back uh, on my decision. Um, I Never once. Um, Is there anything you miss? I miss you know, the people and some of the uh, places as well, because I was doing this for a did, long did time. Did it feel like a loss when you left at first? Maybe 20% loss, 80% relief? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. But I, I never felt, I, I've never looked back on it. Now, listen, I won't mention what we've gone through in, I won't mention the word what we've gone through the last couple of years, because yeah. I'm tired of hearing the word, probably like you. Uh, but this thing over the last two years 
uh, we know what's happened with people. We're seeing, the, what do they call it, the great resignation. I mean, people are having their own moments where they're stopping and they're sort of going, is this mm. really all there is? You know, and I think, I think the last two years have forced that reflection that people have uh, decided, well, I'm not well, gonna. Well, here's, here's my problem. In my business, show business, you know, success, you know, who defines success? The public defines it as rich and famous. Now, fame is very fleeting. Um, rich would have been good. I didn't, whatever. But you get into a, 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 a what would you call it, a mindset of so-called making it, right? So, but then it's generational because new people come along you know, I mean, there's a lot of actors now that are great that are out there, but then there's a lot of actors that used to be big stars, and with luck, they're still working actors. And the thing that's sustaining is, of course, the craft. But it's hard to get out of that mindset of saying, okay, well, I've, I've pretty much already made my mark. For me, I just, I get taken over by projects. like. I've been, and, and then the other thing is to be grateful. You know, I've had in the last few years just the most remarkable stuff happening. I just did a movie, Peter Farrelly's next movie. It's called The Greatest Beer Run Ever. It's not about a beer run. It's 1967. It's in New York. This neighborhood is taking the Vietnam. They, they're sending kids to Vietnam. They're not coming back. So beer is kind of symbolic. So the civilian goes over there. And it's, it's an incredible story, and it's a true story. So I did this movie, and uh, Peter is coming off an Academy Award, best picture with Green Book and screenwriter and everything. And everybody wanted to be in this movie. And the cast, he called me up. He said, well, Viggo Morgenstern's out, but Russell Crowe is in. Not bad, right? The part I was up for, Bill Murray got. So my scene is with this guy, Zac Efron. So I get there on the set, and this is how the universe works. It's like your trip to Sedona, the reason that you went there could have been somebody you were sitting in the plane next to and say, oh, that's why I'm here. So sometimes, so I walk on the set and I lost friends in Vietnam and they've recreated Vietnam. I said, wow. So this was in a, you know, the good things that have happened in my life and the bad things, none of them were planned for. So this was just this gift from the universe. And I'm doing this one-man show about growing up in Charlestown called Townie, and Peter is the executive producer for the film of it. The earlier stuff I said about making it and all that shit, everything goes away when I'm on a project. And then I think, wow, this is it right here, this moment, this is it. And I get in a zone with another actor. So for me, I have to unlearn what the society has given to me, what success, you know? I mean, I, the fame I've had, I fucking hated it. I, I liked, when people recognize you for your work, that's great. But when people come up to you and they want to tell you a joke, all that shit, it's just, it's a nightmare. So, did you feel that when you left? Like, okay, giving up the big job, there's some prestige, right, in that job? Yeah, power, for, whatever. for sure. And, and y there is, you know, the ego. Do you feel like you've made your mark? Um, I still grapple with that yeah. question. 
and where I'm here's where I go with it, because this just t let's take the podcast, taking a walk. Um, it's something I love doing, meaning walking. It's conversation and interviewing I love, and um, so. So what if not one fucking person listens to this? You know what? I probably will be devastated. Really? But on the other hand, if six people listen, but I've made right six people happy. But right here, right now, we're having a good conversation. That's correct. I so, so that's what I get out of it. When I was on the set of this movie, that's it. That was the experience. I did a show uh, in jails, right? So I was, I had this... It, turned it into a TV show, we pitched it, it didn't happen, but I knew when I performed for those guys, they were so fucking grateful and everything, I said, this is the moment. I felt it, I knew it. This is the moment. Well, you, you're nailing it, because um, I think I mentioned to you, I interviewed uh, Dan Shaughnessy for the podcast about his book on the the Larry Bird era of the okay. Celtics. Yeah. And it's a great book and um, you know in the book you start remembering where you were yourself following right, this right. and that moment in time was an amazing moment and you don't always realize when you're in a moment that it is the moment and it is an amazing moment when I was younger I did Letterman I did all these things HBO with John Candy all this stuff and I wasn't I saw a great interview with Bill Murray and Charlie Rose asked him, he said, you did all these movies, this, that. And Bill Murray said something very profound. He said, yeah, I wish I was there. He was not present. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think... So, so they say with age, I disagree with that. I think it's with consciousness, with concentrating on where you are. I'm enjoying it all more now. I enjoy my work. Well, so I, I enjoy... Um, like I said, interviewing, you know, a Who have you interviewed that really sticks in your head, like over all the years? Because you were in radio as part of sure. the broadcast. I was, right? on the, I was on the air. Um, I would say Jerry Seinfeld, which was such a... I worked with him. I, li I love Jerry Seinfeld. Such an amazing... Some people say, oh, he wasn't great. I'm like, he was great with me. So, so you know, I love comedians. That's why you oh, and really? I hit it off, uh, you know, because I just have such an appreciation for, uh, for comedians. But I would say many of the comedians, whether it was, uh, you know, Dana Carvey, Jerry, and then some of the unsung ones, you know, were so incredible. At that moment, I think they were sort of unsung, like Larry Miller. I know? remember Larry. Right? Yeah. Um, so the comedians have, were great politicians. Interviews. Um, Who'd you interview for politicians? I would say the one that comes to mind is, uh, remember uh, John Kasich who ran for president? Yeah, yeah. I do remember him. John was, when I was in Ohio, uh, we sort of became friends and he was a big music fan. Yeah. Uh, went to a Bob Dylan concert with him and he loved talking about music and I would go, hey, what's, what's Tip O'Neill like? <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? I would yeah, want to hear yeah, some, yeah. you know, inside story. Um, can I designate you the first two-part uh, uh, taking a walk uh, guest right now? And can we... Sure, uh, let's do Let's do a tremendous uh, tease. We're going to... 
I want to hear the first time you met the Farrelly brothers when we come back to part two okay. of Taking a Walk. Sounds great. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.